coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. I'd been in the Navy for 15 years at that point. And that was the first time I realized, oh my gosh, people are going to know I'm a female. They're going to look at me and know I'm a woman. I haven't thought about this. I've just been doing my job and I'm now going to be in charge of 420 sailors and 800 Marines and getting an amphibious warship to the beach. I better go find other women who have done this too. That was the voice of our guest today, Captain Emily Bassett. More coming up from Emily very soon. Today's episode is sponsored by Skill Yoga. Skill Yoga is like a personal digital yoga coach. It's available on the App Store and the Play Store, and it has hundreds of workouts on functional strength, mobility, flexibility, and mindfulness. You won't regret checking it out. We've had the pleasure of using it over the past few months, and we can attest to the high quality videos to the excellent workouts that it provides. We've also got an exclusive discount for listeners of the show. If you head over to skill-yoga.com and enter code SEPR, you can get a 50% discount off the annual subscription package. So do check it out. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Captain Emily Bassett, nuclear engineer and commander for the US Navy and founder of Lean On Navy. Emily is a lifelong learner, a classical civilizations major and Italian minor, a nuclear engineer, and a surface warfare officer for the US Navy. After commanding the Navy's newest littoral combat ship, the USS Manchester, Emily was the reactor officer on the USS Gerald R. Ford. She gets strength from other leaders who share their stories and ideas with her. She loves mentoring, being mentored, and lean in circles. Today we speak about what her role on the ships involve, what a day looks like. We dig into the importance of reading and journaling as self-care of the highest level. We unpack what Lean in Circles are and discuss Emily's work with the Sea Service Leadership Association and Lean on Navy, a space for developing female leaders filled with connection and community. Emily tells us what her purpose is and an amazing story of a potential coffee shop startup. We had to ask about coffee as Emily is based in Seattle, the home of Starbucks. Captain Emily Bassett, thanks for coming on the show. How are you today? Well, I'm wonderful. <laughs> Commander in the US Navy, Emily, you documented that you're a lifelong learner. When did you find out that you always wanted to learn something more? When did it first start? I think it started uh, at a very young age, but I don't think I was aware of it until I made a huge step transition in my life. When I left um, my hometown, I was born and raised in Seattle in a smaller town called Edmonds and uh, never left. And then when I went to college, um, there I was 3,000 miles away in Boston at an ROTC unit and I had just left an all-girls Catholic small high school. And now I was one of 5,000 students uh, being told a whole new set of rules according to the military's structure. And um, I remember calling my mom after the first week of what we call indoctrination. And I was telling her all these mistakes I had made and things I'd gotten yelled at for and, and things that were just completely foreign to me and how, how I was supposed to march and how, how I was supposed to wear my uniform and all these new things. And I said, mom, I have so much room for improvement. <laughs> and the funny thing is she tells me that story and reminds me of that joy. And it was this joy that I had literally to be excited 
that I had so much room for improvement. I had so much to learn. Um, I wasn't good at any of it, certainly not by the standards that I was being evaluated, but I just had no idea that, that these other way of this other way of living a life in a, in a city, in the military at a huge university um, would offer me so much um, opportunities to learn. And that was my first response to it was, this is an opportunity to learn, not um, I'm not good or I'm not, I'm not good enough. Instead, that was my response. And I think that response from, you know, 18, 19 year old Emily Bassett, or at the time, Emily Clauser was formed by the way I was raised, but it continued to be the way I approached life. Like that's pretty profound wisdom. Having that kind of growth mindset at that point to see these things as not as challenges, but as opportunities, just, just getting better and just learning every day. And I think if people even can take that from today's conversation, that in itself is a huge lesson. That would be a win if if our listeners today um, listen to that and, and are able to frame their challenges as opportunities. And it's not a Pollyanna, you know, hey, look at the bright side. It's really digging in and facing your facing my challenges. I, I dig into my problems. I write about them. I, I roll up my sleeves. I talk about them. I look at them from different angles. Um, and as a way to be curious, so the curiosity is my response to my, uh, quote failures. And you've touched on something important there because we often get this advice to have a growth mindset, to look at things as learning curves, as, as ways to get better, but we get emotional in the moment or we get emotional when we look back on the situation that we failed in and may have had consequences and subsequently we may have lost something. How do you deal with maybe setbacks and what's the first strategy you implement when something doesn't go your way? Well, unfortunately, I have lots of examples of that. (laughs) (laughs) So I think my first thing is to let it be okay to go through the emotional response. So my first emotional response is extremely negative chatter. It is sometimes anger, um, sometimes despair, sometimes sadness. Um, Sometimes uh, I want to pull away from that event. And so over time, what I've learned is how to um, create space for that in my world. So if I, so that nobody's on the other side of me having to deal with my response. So maybe that means leaving the room, you know, maybe that means getting my journal out and writing about it. Maybe that means promising myself that I will give myself time later to react. I've had to do that. The more senior I got, the more I had to kind of write myself promissory notes that I would, you know, have a delayed response. And so maybe at the end of my workday, I might drive home, I might drive home sobbing, like, oh my gosh, and I might replay the really tough scenario that I had to uh, encounter during my workday. So that was over time, you know, when I was more immature, I probably responded right on the moment. So over time, I learned how to control my response. But the first response to answer your question is I let it be okay to have an emotional human response to the setback complete that emotional cycle just to let it be okay and not try to let the voice of, oh, here's the positive side or, oh, you get to learn or, you know, I'll get there eventually, but I, I, you know, I need to go through the seven steps. (laughs) (laughs) Journaling has come up here already and it seems to be a common denominator. People that come on the show and they, they often say it's a habit that, you know, keeps them sane, helps improve their mental resilience uh, and keeps them performing, especially with that element you're talking about with the self-talk. How important is journaling for you and, and how much of a big part has it been for your life up to date? Uh, I mean, it's been a huge part. 
so I have, I have two shelves, bookshelves of journals and I'm not, I don't care about um, them being chronological. I'll lose them and then find them again and start in the middle of one journal. I have little notebooks. Um, I throw them away. I rarely, I mean, almost never go back and read my journals later because um, <laughs> they probably would scare me. I would just, I write a lot of pain out. I don't write for a reader. I write for myself as I'm writing and, you know, I leave them around the house. I've had roommates. I leave them around. Um, I always say, read at your own risk. You know, if somebody else picks it up and finds some terrible things written about them, it, I, I don't hold myself responsible for anything written in there. Um, and I don't lock my journal, um, even though I probably do write some pretty mean things about other people in there because I, for me, it, it's a way to process uh, my experience in life. And it's a way to pay attention to what's happening around me through another mechanism, which is the power of the written word that distills emotion for me when I write. And one of the more um, helpful modes of writing for me when I have a particularly tough challenge and huge transitions that I've had to make throughout my career when I would go from commanding a warship of 70 sailors to you know, being the nuclear um, engineer, most senior uh, officer as a reactor officer on a $13 billion warship, the Gerald R. Ford, brand new design, new assumptions, new procedures. So very huge technological challenge and leadership challenge. And I couldn't always work through the problem as I would see it. So I would have to write about my challenges. And the hack, I guess, to call it a word would be that I would write in the third person if it was a particularly tough challenge. So I would write as if I were my own guardian angel. So I would never say, this is what happened today. I would write, dear Emily, I know you meant the best when this thing happened. I know you, and I would just give myself the benefit of the doubt. And you weren't expecting that response that you got when this thing happened. And um, that's not like you. You're a person who cares about, you know, integrity and people feeling heard. So uh, and I would just give myself advice, but I would just write and write and write so that I could give a voice to a benevolent uh, third party that only cared, only assumed good things and good intentions in my behavior and then wanted the best for me. Again, I wouldn't read it. I would just put it away and just carry on. Brilliant. And never actually heard the third person piece before. What what does the, just getting down to it, what, what does the practice look like? I mean, do you, do you do it in the morning? Do you do it in the evening? Does it vary in terms of duration? Is, is it a non-negotiable every day? What's it look like for you? That's right. That's a great question. I mean, it varies from time to time. So um, right now in my, as my life varies. So right now in my, my life is very predictable right now. I have what's called shore duty. So I go to a building, I ride my bicycle, I get on the ferry, I catch a ferry every day, I get to work, the working hours are the same. I'm I'm responsible for uh, two aircraft carriers, reactor departments in my job title, but it's set hours. Compared to in the past, I've been very flexible. I've had to get underway for six, 10 months at a time. I've had to be on a tether. You know, the ship gets underway, schedules change, weather. So I had less predictability in my day. So right now, since I have so much predictability in my day, I do set a routine where I write or at least I put my journal on my lap. I don't always write in it. Sometimes I'm just daydreaming. But my journal is on my lap for at least 30 minutes in the morning. And then as part of my morning routine, I, I might start writing for a little bit. And then I always carry a journal with me. So I have a place to kind of jot notes. And I even use my phone. Sometimes I have notes on my phone. But in, in different times of my life, the answer was different. Sometimes I was extremely disciplined. And other times it was just uh, always there as a friend waiting to be my benevolent <laughs> listener. <laughs> 
I think we have to touch on it. I mean, we have some interesting conversations, but it's rare to speak to someone who's captaining a USS Manchester or is okay. the most the most senior nuclear officer or engineer on a 13 billion warship. That's a, that's a rare one for us. When did you start really focusing on nuclear propulsion officer, that sort of area? And what has been the most surprising thing for you about that specific area and your knowledge you've gained to the I mean, it's a great question, and everyone's story is so different. If you were to ask another uh, person with a similar background as mine, you know, we all have very unique stories, so I can just tell you mine. Um, And for me, um, I did not intend ever to be a nuclear engineer. Um, I joined the Navy for a variety of reasons um, and, you know, served my country, you know, learn more about the military, all those things, and it gave me a free college education, um, lots of reasons, and I had a free, I had a job waiting for me when I got out. I knew I was going to be a naval officer. Um, so I got to pick any major I wanted. So I didn't think of college as a trade school. Um, I thought of college as a place to learn how to learn. Um, and I had the freedom to do that because I had a job waiting for me. I knew I was going to be a Navy officer. So I studied Greek and Roman civilization and Italian. I just loved learning. So I'm like, I'm going to learn how the Greeks learned. I'm going to learn about mythology. <laughs> and what happened there is I ended up getting really good grades because I was taking such, you know, maybe call them easy classes compared to my, you know, mechanical engineer classmates. And then the Navy said, hey, you know, we need nuclear engineers. Uh, can you go through our training program? And I'll tell you, for the first five years I was in that program, I kept thinking, well, today could be my last day when they find out that I don't belong here. <laughs> and worst case, I'll fail. And then I'll go back to what I really joined the Navy to do, which was, which was drive ships that were not nuclear. As the course went on, because it was the toughest thing I've ever done, it's learning how to be a nuclear engineer. But the Navy's training program is world class. And I stayed with it. And every day thought that could be my last day until I finally certified as a nuclear engineer and just stayed with it and really appreciated discipline and the rigor and the challenge of it. And as it turned out in a 22-year year, nuclear engineers in the Navy that are leaders in the officer ranks, we only spend a portion of our time actually operating nuclear engineer, nuclear reactors. And then the other portion we spend uh, commanding warships that are not nuclear. The USS Manchester, it's diesel and gas turbine. So it's a really well-rounded career. It's very interesting. It's something that we wouldn't come across in our day-to-day in Ireland, which is often seen as a little neutral state. We don't have too many warships that are worth a few billion here, but for a force nuclear propulsion officer, what is the day-to-day? What is What happens when you, you wake up on the ship? What's the first thing you have to attend to? It's funny because your day, uh, when I was the reactor officer, your day never really kind of ends or begins. It's You're kind of always on call. There is a battle rhythm, as we call it, uh, for, you know, when a ship is underway, you have your morning meetings, you have your, we do plant walkthroughs, you know, meaning you're walking to the propulsion plant. Um, you have your watch standing, basically it's overall managing of, uh, all the sailors, uh, that operate that plant. And then you're managing the operational perspective, like what are, what's our next maintenance item? What's our next operational commitment, making sure that the uh, propulsion plant can support and is prepared and you're looking at technical procedures, you're planning out the requirements, and then you're really managing a team. So the lessons I learned in command of a small warship absolutely applied to my the challenges that I had to face as a reactor officer in a very complex, large environment. I felt very ready. One, I'd had the technical expertise because the Navy had trained me. And then 
really what I needed once I was in the job was all the operational leadership ex- leadership experience I had from commanding a ship. So it was all really just about leadership and how to motivate a team to work together. And how has your leadership evolved over the years through those different experiences that you've had? Because in terms of your leadership journey, how has it changed and evolved? It's changed quite a bit. Um, I would say it's simplified, honestly. So I've gotten more and more complex and complicated examples and stories uh, that I've had to work through. But over time, I've seen more and more patterns. I've also read more in my more senior years. I stopped reading books really for about 10 years in the middle of my career when I was just trying to get technically proficient at the day-to-day in my job. I regretfully uh, stopped reading uh, outside of my own profession. And then uh, it was really when I met Jay Hennessy, who's the friend that introduced us, uh, you know, who's a fellow commanding officer when I was in command and he leading Navy SEALs at the time in their training. And one of his first questions to me is, what are you reading? And I remember being really embarrassed by that question because I, I wasn't reading anything. So I started reading again and through all the books I've read on leadership and then through my own experiences over time, what I've found is there are just some very, very simple um, frame, there's a simple framework that st- has started to evolve for me that, that over time I've been able to use and it's helped me navigate even the most complex of, of challenges in a very simple way I can articulate it now. You're speaking about reading. It's something we sort of try and support each other and encourage each other to do because we see the value of it when we have these conversations, when we meet people, when we interact, when we look at different topics. What's your area of most interest over the last few years? Has it been leadership or is there anything else you've dived into in terms of trying to get more knowledgeable about? So I've mostly, I uh, find myself reading leadership books. I'm reading a Kurt Vonnegut book right now because it's just dark humor. It makes me laugh. Um, but for the most part, I would, I will pick up, uh, you know, the, the Brene Brown books, Dare to Lead, you know, McChrystal, Team of Teams. I'll pick up Boss, you know, Never Split the Difference. I just read a book called Chatter. So those, I would say, are sort of books about leadership or about the brain and about how we think. And of course, I was raised on my mother's books, you know, just reread, write it down, make it happen. There's lots of life stories in there about how to use writing for getting what you want out of life. So sometimes they're kind of not just leadership, but they're self-help books. And and when you're going and dipping into all these various interesting books, and we've heard of all of them, they're all fantastic reads, kind of how do you know what you want to learn next or how do you know what's the next book you're really interested in does is it often a recommended book or is it just something you might pick up and it could be a little bit different i live my life in a sort of expectation of good things coming to me so what i mean by that is i let books come to me i let book recommendations come to me i let uh, you know i listen to part of a podcast that recommends a book and I often find an incredible amount of serendipity when I'm reading a book like, oh, this is exactly the problem I'm trying to solve right now. How did, how did this book get in my lap? <laughs> so um, because I'm such a reflective person and I'm, you know, always paying attention to the world around me, taking notes, being aware, trying to find meaning in things, um, often, even if I don't read an entire book, but I might a book might get recommended to me, I'll just read a summary of it or get the PDF or watch the 10 minute video on YouTube of someone trying to put the book in 10 minutes. Uh, that might be enough to propel me to think differently about my current life challenge. And that diversity of thoughts and different um, topics that you're looking at, how important is that is when you're leading the team, when you're leading that crew to have a diversity of opinions, a diversity of backgrounds, a di- diversity of cultures and beliefs? 
it's incredibly important and one that is hard to articulate um, because it's hard to measure and it's hard to call yourself successful at the end of the day. In the military, we like unity of effort. You know, we like, uh, we call them uniforms so that we can be uniform. <laughs> so we like to be the same. Uh, we like a standard. So we like to say, this is the standard that we can define and you either meet it or you don't. Those are all very important when it comes to um, safely operating a nuclear propulsion plant. All those words are very important. They're also very important when you need to sail a ship into harm's way. Um, so you need uh, discipline, you need standards, you need uniformity. Um, so very hard to contrast that environment culturally to the other environment. And it's not the other, let's say to I'm even cautious to use the word other, but it's hard to have that conversation about the importance of uniformity and also have a conversation about diversity and um, creativity and uh, innovation, which seem to conflict directly with the structure of the military. And that is, that's the stuff of long deliberation and where I find, I love that tension. So to me, I, I find incredible excitement in that tension and I lean into it and I embrace it partly because I am such a diverse figure myself. Uh, I show up in a room and I don't look like others. I laugh a little bit louder. I think differently. I've, I draw pictures on a whiteboard to tell a story as opposed to, you know, make a list of to do's. Um, and for some people that that doesn't work, they really want to be told what to do. And I instead don't want to tell people what to do. I want to tell, I want to shape their thinking so they'll know what to do. And I question how they think. So I think that is a piece of diversity because I think differently, um, one, by how I was raised and two, by my, by being a woman, I am curious about how others think and what they bring. And we have to figure that out, even in a very uniform, standard ridden environment. And right now, I, th I think the U.S. military, same as probably every military and probably most organizations right now are probably having to rethink their own standards because they might have been based on a set of assumptions that might have been valued, valuable and valued at one time, but might not be true anymore. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and then we'd love to just talk a little bit as to the importance of mentoring now. And obviously, if we're looking up your LinkedIn profile, we see we see the leaning circles, we see the president of the sea service, we see lean and learn, lean on Navy, all these all, all these entities that you're very much a focal point of. How important has mentoring been to you to date? And, and kind of what did, how much value do you put into it, especially for those of us listening that mightn't have a mentor in our corner yet? You know, it's funny even hearing you repeat it all back. It's like, gosh, I do spend a lot of my, you know, free free time. That's my hobby is, and I even am cautious with that word mentoring. I, it's, it's the right word. It's one that I think most of our listeners would understand. And it's what we mean by it. I'm, gosh, what's a better word that would, I think, resonate for me would be maybe a coach or maybe I want to attract other learning leaders. I want to attract people who want to learn. And so when I think of mentoring, you know, there's a time in my career where I would go to someone who was senior to me and say, hey, ma'am, you know, I'd usually find women. Uh, and I would say, here's, here's my career path. Can you mentor me and tell me what choice I should make? And that's a very transactional and very important discussion that we need mentors who are senior in our careers that can help us with that. What I would say is I'm not that I can't do that. I can. That's not what gives me my fuel. What kind of inspires me is growing an army of learning leaders so that we can all 
think about the challenges we have in a way that is inclusive and in a way that celebrates the goodness in all of us for community purposes. So that's a longer phrase than the word mentoring, but <laughs> it's kind of where I find myself. And building then communities, it can be it can be easier for some people who find themselves in an organization that has structure, that has maybe people in position to offer that. For someone who's on their own or for someone who wants to reach out to different nationality, different cultures, different beliefs, do you have any advice for them how to get in contact? You've built some great connections with Jay Hennessy through the Indians and building them communities like Lean on Navy. What's your advice to someone who wants to start a community of their own? I want to encourage them to just get started because I would offer you that what I've done through the Lean on Navy website or through my Lean in circles, all of those I did really without permission. Like nobody, I kind of had to get some permission because I was using Navy emails or, and I made mistakes along the way. I was just so hungry to learn from other leaders. Um, It came out of sheer necessity. So I had just left, um, I was an Olmsted scholar in Spain, the scholarship department of defense awarded through the Olmsted foundation where I spent three years in Spain, uh, learning Spanish, getting a master's taught in Spanish. And then I come back to the States. Now I'm in a nuclear, back in a nuclear job. And then from there, I'm the XO of an amphibious ship. And that was the first time I was, I'd been in the Navy for 15 years at that point. And that was the first time I realized, oh my gosh, people are going to know I'm a female. They're going to look at me and know I'm a woman. I haven't thought about this. I've just been doing my job and I'm now going to be in charge of 420 sailors and 800 Marines and getting an amphibious warship to the beach. What am I doing? I better go find other women who have done this too. So I, out of sheer necessity, I, I found Cheryl Sandberg's book at the time. I was super inspired by her book, Lean In, and by her website that she has for uh, lean in videos. And so I said, Hey, okay, everyone come to my house Saturday. You know, I offered my home up. I just emailed people. I didn't even know and invited them and people. I think most people really want some structure. And so I was willing to offer it. So I made rules up as I went and I made up, I was like, Hey, watch this video on imposter syndrome or watch this video on posture <laughs> on how to you know, show that you're confident, even when you don't feel like you're confident, let's all watch this 10 minute video and then come to my house and have donuts. So I literally made it up just to give some structure to it. And I followed, you know, lean in uh, advice from the website that Cheryl Sandberg started, you know, people self-selected who would come, who wouldn't come. And for me, it was such a good response that I got that I, even if only two people came, I usually had 10 but even if only two came, it was like, okay, another person who's going to talk to me about how, what kind of challenges they're having in their work day not for attribution. And I got to learn, oh my gosh, our stories are so similar. Like the people are different, but we have very similar stories. And it motivated me so much that I just kept doing it. And I thought people are learning from one another in a community. We learn how none of us is ever facing a problem for the first time, even though it is unique to us. So that's my advice is just get started. I mean, just send an email out or do whatever thing it would be to reach your community and say, or reach another community. You know, like Jay and I started a book club you know, with another person, like just pick another community and um, meet once a month or once a week or whatever, something regular and have something professional about it. So whether it's a book or a TED talk or something, so it's not just a knitting circle of gossip, it's somehow centered around a theme. You have to have good donuts as well. That's probably what the key was, Emily, right? So that's not just the donuts, but the coffee. So Seattle is my culture 
And I define my life around getting good cappuccinos and lattes and even latte art. If it can have a picture in it, even better. (laughs) So being from Seattle, you know, I'd be a big fan of Frasier, right? And we we, we like the Seahawks. Is is Starbucks popular in Seattle or are people more supporting the local, like you open up your, like Kiran opens up a cafe down the road. Is that where you'd go instead of going to Starbucks? (laughs) That's right. So uh, I live in Capitol Hill and on my block, I have within one block, I have about four coffee shops. Two of them are Starbucks. And then if I go another three blocks, there's no less than 15 coffee shops I can choose to go to. And only one on that block is Starbucks. So um, I would say we all have our uh, local uh, coffee shops. Starbucks is excellent for the masses. It convinced everyone to pay a lot more money uh, for coffee (laughs) so that the uh, local guys and gals who are opening their own shops here and, you know, do the latte art and have the latte wall of art on the, on the walls. And they have the, the bookshelves of books you can borrow and all on, on integrity. You just borrow a book and put a new one back or the local artwork on the walls. They're all about community. The coffee shops here are all about community. And I love that about uh, Seattle and about cities that have coffee shops. So I was going to talk about what's the key to uh, conversation. Is it authentic vulnerability and psych safety? But we'll park that, Emily, because this is more interesting for now. And we're going to ask, say we manage to get over to Seattle in the next 10 years and you have your own coffee shop. What's what's your coffee shop look like? What's the name of it? What's the signature coffee? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to tell you a true story. Okay. And not about the past and not about the future, because um, this is a true story. So I was the EXO of the USS Arlington, and um, I had a coffee shop in my stateroom that was this little Starbucks barista. And the ship was rocking and rolling this one day, um, and it was particularly heavy seas. And so we took our schedule and we cleared it. I took the whole schedule for the day. I was like, everyone just, you know, hunker down. Let's, you know, make sure that we're stowed for sea. Um, and we're going to clear the schedule. So it meant that I had um, three hours that I didn't have to go to meetings I had scheduled for the day. And so my command master chief, um, who's the senior enlisted, he walks into my office and now we're going to get something done that we knew we needed three hours to kind of dig into this problem of all this thing we had to do. So he walks into my stateroom and um, I and as a way to introduce, I said, you know what, um, one day uh, I want to have my own coffee shop. And uh, I said, I'm going to have... Um, I'm going to have really, really good beans. It's going to be just the best beans ever. They're going to be excellent. And I'm going to have latte art. And then there's going to be a bookshelf. And it's going to have uh, books that people are going to be able to share back and forth. And there's going to be local artwork on the walls. And then there's going to be a gorgeous view um, out the windows to um, a waterfall or some kind of moving water. There needs to be like a waterfall or a water feature because I just love looking at water and the sound of water falling. Um, And it's going to be a place where people can just, you know, come and go. It's going to be open 24-7, this coffee shop I'm going to have one day. And he looks at me and he goes, huh? And he looks around my stateroom and he's like, well, you've got that bookshelf right there. And no kidding. I had books that people, my division officers would just come and steal books and put new books back and forth. You know, I had my little library right there. He's like, you've got the best beans on the ship right here. And that artwork on the wall, didn't you actually draw that chart? I had to, as one of my um, trainings, I had to actually draw a nautical chart of the harbor to prove that I knew all the depths and knew all the terrain of the entry and of our port, our home port. So I had drawn this uh, very detailed chart that was up on the wall that I framed and put up there. He's like, you've got local art on the walls and you've got a view because I had a a porthole to the ocean on the other side. He's like, looks like you're doing it now. Open today. it (laughs) It was this joyful moment of one. It was funny because he had just called me on my, you know, on my words but two, I thought, 
yes, why not start now? Why wait 10 or 20 years to do this? I'm doing this right now. So <laughs> does that answer your question? Yeah, pretty even, much. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a name for the coffee shop, Nuclear Caffeine. There you go. There you go. I'd go. He's been thinking of that now. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Emily, look, we'll get back to the serious stuff for a minute. We we don't have many more questions. Uh, You've you've impacted a lot of people. We're sure you have over the years, and you're you're still learning. We're always curious as to what's driving somebody that's performing and excelling across a lot of things, and and giving service to many, like what you're doing in those circles. So what's, what's the purpose? What are you doing? What are the big things you really focus on? What do you really care about? Wow. Um, what do I really care about? You know, I would say I care about connection. I care about connection. I care about, I, I know what it feels like to feel alone. I know what it feels like to, to be alone and to feel like you're the only person with a problem. Um, and that, that goes to a pretty dark place. Um, and it's just not true. There's nothing there's no problem ever that any of us has ever faced that we're the first person to ever face it, even if we feel like we're alone. And I felt that so deeply myself in my own life, thought my challenges were uniquely mine and no one else could ever, ever understand this. So when I was able to pick my chin up and kind of chin up, look around, you know, meet some other people, get them to be willing to share their story with me, which is hard. A lot of people don't want to share their story because there's um, risk in that. I find it to be so soulful, like literally to fill my soul when someone else is willing to share their story with me. If that's my gift to one person is if my story helps pick their chin up to come out of a dark place and instead find a way that we can work as a community uh, to solve problems together, then then success, then love, then truth, then joy. I have one last question, really. If you got the opportunity, let's say we spoke with someone recently, we said if you had the last tweet, Twitter was closing down and you could deliver one message and it would go worldwide, everyone was going to see this and you felt you were the one to deliver it. What would be the most important message that you'd want to get out to the masses? Which I love. I think, you know, if you respond, like even people in my career, I, I one of my friends, he's called himself my anger manager because um, there's been people who have really, um, you know, I've been the, I've, I don't want to call myself the victim, but I've been on the other end of some very sexist uh, choices that I was not the winning person in that scenario. I've been on the other end of uh, not great uh, of challenges. And I deliberately don't want to harbor, harbor anger because I don't want to weigh myself down. So I sometimes have anger manager, this friend of mine, he's like, I'll be your anger manager. And he'll remember friends of, or leaders of mine that have maybe wronged me. And I will be like that person. Oh, he meant well, or I'll, I'll think positively about them at the end because I don't, I want to, I only want to carry love in my heart. Like I just, I, anything else is just too heavy. So that's my advice to myself. And it's usually what my guardian angel will tell me as I'm writing is just to approach the problem with love. Otherwise, you'll drive a ship over that person. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. <laughs> and carry a big stick, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> As Theodore Roosevelt said. Yeah. That's awfully, carry a big stick. Emily, we, we've learned an awful lot from you. And uh, thanks for your time. Really grateful. Curious, one more question. What does high performance mean to you, Captain? High performance. I see that phrase used like a high performing team. Um, usually it means a short cycle between uh, problems and solution. That's the a high performing team iterates, I think, and acts quickly 
uh, to try new things. And I counter that with, you know, my favorite Einstein quote, which is, you know, if he says that if he had 60 minutes to solve a problem, he would spend 55 minutes studying the problem. Uh, so it doesn't mean to be reactive. It means, you know, you have a problem, you spend 55 minutes sol looking at the problem, not solving it, but just deciding what is the actual problem here. And then you solve it. And if you're a high performing team, you're going to, those problems are going to come in, those challenges are going to come in and you're going to name them. You're going to look at them. You're going to study them. You're not going to try to solve them. Not for, not until the last five minutes. You're just going to make sure you totally understand the problem from all the different viewpoints. And then you're going to act in those last five minutes and you're going to start solving them. And if you can short cycle that you're a high performing team. Emily Bassett, thank you very much for your time today. Really, really, really enjoyed it. Got an awful lot from it. Compelling, learned a lot. I think we, uh, we thought we read, but I think we need to read more, Kieran. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we thought we had that, but we, we don't. Income, yeah. She wins. She wins. <laughs> no, no. I only got started, uh, you know, the past couple of years, I restarted. So you can take a break and then just come back. And, you know, I give myself credit for uh, reading Cliff Notes, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot for your time. Enjoy the, enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy your coffee and uh, stay fit, stay healthy. Look after yourself. Same to you both. Thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks Emily. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.